0: Today on Focal Point with Pastor Mike Fabares.
1: He says he's gonna work it all out, but it's really hard to believe when you're reading your life script and it looks to be as messed up as it is. And you're saying, I don't get it. Why do I have this disease? Why is this going on? Why is that relationship falling apart? Why didn't I get that job? Why can't we get into that house? And all those things are happening. And you're thinking, what's wrong here, God? Trust the author. Put your future in his hands and recognize that your story's going somewhere.
0: Have you ever thought of your life as a book? Imagine that you're the main character living out the story and God is the author, the only one who knows how it will all turn out. Welcome to Focal Point, I'm your host, Dave Drewey. In today's message, Pastor Mike Fabares is encouraging us to trust the author of our story because he works all things together for our good. We're picking up today's study through 2 Samuel in chapter 15, right as David is fleeing Jerusalem.
1: Verse 24, not only was he thinking as a team and having people rally around him, but when the religious leaders show up, it's interesting to note the kinds of things he authorizes and the response that he gives to them. Verse 24, Zadok, he was one of the priests. He was there too. And all the Levites, those were the religious leaders. And they were carrying the Ark of the Covenant and they set it down. And Abathar, the priest there, he offered sacrifices until all the people had finished leaving the city. Now think about that. Does that even make any sense? You're moving into exile. You don't know how long you're going to be there. And you're willing to kill some of the provisions, the animals that you're going to need to live on. You're willing to sacrifice. See, it shows me that if David is going to put up with that, authorize that, and stand there as an official and allow this to happen, he's not there shaking his fist at God. Even when his life goes crazy and the circumstances of his life go really bad, he's not anxious. He's not freaked out. And not being freaked out like that, he shows this incredible calm. Not only in saying, God, you're great. You're worthy of all of our stuff. Here's a token provision of what we have to show you how great you are. Not only do they participate in regular worship, but he says in verse 25 to Zadok, you know what, take that ark back to the city. Because you know what, if, if Absalom is supposed to be the king, then that box belongs there in that city. Notice how he says it. If I find favor, middle of verse 25, in Yahweh's eyes, then he'll bring me back and let me see it in his dwelling place again. But if he says, I am not pleased with you, then David says, I'm ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. Wow. What an incredible peace and resolve to whatever God has for him. His future, basically, he's saying, you know what, God, it's in your hands. Do you see that kind of peace in mature Christians that you know sometimes? They face a trial and you watch them and they're just steady. And you say, wow, how do they do that? They do it because, like David, I put it this way in your outline, they leave their future to God. They just leave it up to God. They say, my future, it's up to God. And panicking and fearing and being anxious and freaking out in my life is not what I'm going to do. As a matter of fact, in the Christian life, this is one for you to crochet on a, on a pillow and put it on your couch. Are you ready? You have no right to freak out as a Christian. You need to recognize that in the Christian life, you've got no option to do that. Let me prove it to you. Keep your finger here. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 8. Here's a scenario for you. You got Jesus in your boat. Okay. think about that for a minute. You know, you're 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 just sailing and you're thinking no problems here. Look who I got as a passenger. I got the Messiah. I, I mean, there he is. Ain't nothing bad happening today. Look at it, Matthew chapter 8. Notice what's said here in this passage. Verse 23, he got into the boat. Disciples followed him without warning. A furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat, but Jesus was, hello, what? Sleeping. I can just see him. And the guys on the deck are going, ah, we've never seen a storm like this. And you're just freaking out. I mean, this is poetic because in our lives, it doesn't feel that way sometimes. Crisis, trials, we're praying, we're begging, we're pleading, God, help, change this. Make sure the test doesn't come back that way. God, I don't want to get laid off. Our finances, if that happens, and it's all starting to happen. The storm is breaking loose in our life. And it's like, God, and he's like sleeping. I mean, that's what it feels like. I thought I had Christ in my life. I thought God was gonna, gonna keep me from this. I thought he loved me. And so they do what you and I would do. We, they ran down and said, Jesus, wake up. Look at it, verse 25. Disciples went and woke him up and said, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. And notice what happens in verse 26. Jesus wakes up and says, ah, really? Quick, grab the life preservers, jump, swim. Every man for himself. You see that there in verse 26? All that happens Because Jesus knows this is an incredible storm. Wow, you ought to be scared. We could all die here. No, he doesn't say that. He focuses in on the core problem for people freaking out about their future. He says this, "O you of little faith. Now I'm going to be really offended by that response, right? Like, what are you talking about? And especially with this next phrase, why are you so afraid? I mean, all, with all due respect, I'd slap my forehead and say, duh, because there's a huge storm here, Christ. We're going to die. That's why we're freaking out here. I mean, that's what I'm going to say. And he says, no, you don't have faith. Why are you afraid? Do you see what he's implicitly saying there? He's implying that you've got no right to freak out. Storm, bad storm looks really, 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 really bad. You know what? I expect you to be Calm. Because your level of faith ought to increase to match the circumstance. Which means if it's really getting squirrely in your life, if it's really getting weird, if it's really getting bad in finances or relationships or your health, if it's really bad, he says, I don't expect you to freak out. I expect you to trust me to have faith, to put your future in my hands to say that if this is the day for Peter, James, and John to die, I guess this is the day for Peter, James, and John to die and to resign yourself to God's future. Now, granted, that's very, 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 very hard and a very mature thing to do, but that should be the focus. How much faith do I have? God, help me to trust you with my future. I have been for many years, a very immature reader, and hopefully I'm making progress in this area, but Early on in particular, I remember as a teenager, if a book didn't make sense to me, like in the first few pages, you know, it's like, you know, give me give me a book that makes sense. Because I had a problem hanging in there if things got twisted and confused right away. But you know that if you have that approach to literature or reading, you're not going to read very many good books. Take a novel, for instance, you're not going to be able to figure out the book in the first few chapters. If it's a good novel, there's lots of twists and subplots, a lot of tension, a lot of things that don't make sense. In chapter five, it's looking pretty weird. But if you have the discipline and the patience and the faith in the author that this isn't just some waste of space, right? This isn't just, you know, a bunch of words on a page taking up useless space. If it really makes sense and there's a storyline and there's a plot, then it's going to be resolved. And so you trust in chapter 5 that by chapter 37 it's all going to make sense. And you trust human authors if you're a good reader. You do. You trust them. You trust them to pull all this together and a good book does. The good book starts to weave all these things together and that didn't seem to make sense. But look, and that character, you didn't even understand why he was in the story. Well, here's why he's in the story. And it all comes to this beautiful resolve and we trust the author to get it there. Well, right now you're Some of you are going through chapter five in your life, right? I mean, it's hard and it doesn't make sense. And yet, you know, in the back of your mind that you've been called to in the Bible in passages like Romans chapter eight to trust the author, because if you love him and are called according to his purpose, he says he's going to work it all out. But it's really hard to believe when you're reading your life script and it looks to be as messed up as it is. And you're saying, I don't get it. Why do I have this disease? Why is this going on? Why is that relationship falling apart? Why didn't I get that job? Why can't we get into that house? And all those things are happening. And you're thinking what's wrong here, God? Trust the author. Put your future in his hands and recognize that your story is going somewhere. And that God is a God who knows what he's doing with your life and your goal is not to figure it all out in chapter 5. Your goal is to trust him. And God says to us, you don't have enough faith. And when you're freaking out, you're showing your lack of faith. And Jesus stands up and proves to them that he's been in control the whole time. And he says to the storm and to the rain and to the wind, stop. And then I can see him going back down and laying down and going to sleep. You know, And the guys are going, wow. And feeling quite stupid, I would say. You know what? He was in control the whole time. And we just didn't trust him. It's like Jesus flipping ahead and showing you the last chapter. And he didn't do that for us. He did it for the disciples and showed them once and for all and for us to read and learn from now that he's got it all under control. But that's the lesson for us now. Put your future in his hands and trust him with it. And David was doing that. Back to our passage, 2 Samuel 15. Look what he's saying. Hey, you know what? If, if God has not approve of me as king, that's fine. I mean, I'm not going to make it back. I can't fight him. If God wants me back, I'm going to be back. I'll see the ark again. Just leave the ark where it belongs in Jerusalem. But though some of you may take that simple principle and start to take that as your life theme, and that is let go and let God, I want to balance that point out for you. Because just as David demonstrates with his life, it is not a license to passivity. It is not as though God is saying to us, I'll take care of you, And wherever I take you, you're going to end up anyway. So guys, just grab a lemonade and hang in the hammock for a while, and I'll take care of everything else, okay? That's not it. And David demonstrates it. In the very next verse, he says to Zadok, hey, you're taking that that ark back. You're a prophet. You're a seer. Go back to the city in peace. Go with your son and and, and with Abathar and his son. And, And you know what? He says in verse 28, I'll wait in the fords of the desert until word comes from you to inform me. What's he saying? you can work and inform me of what's going on there. Why? Because he knows in his head that what's going on with Absalom is not right. Oh, he knows it's painful. They're all weeping and crying. In verse 30, you can see that. But he knows also that it's not right. He's usurping the throne. God has not blessed him. The prophet has not anointed him. This has not been something that has been divinely established by God. Oh, if I don't leave the city, I'm gonna get killed. My family get killed and the city will be ravaged. So I gotta leave, but I know it's not right. So I need to do something about it. As a matter of fact, after the picture of them crying in verse 30 in verse 31, he finds out that Ahithophel is among the conspirators. Remember Ahithophel? He's one of the highest ranking officials in David's cabinet. He was also the grandfather of Bathsheba, so he was a little estranged, we assume, from David. And he was living in the suburbs when Absalom calls him up and says to him, why don't you meet me in Hebron and we'll talk about overthrowing the king? And when David hears that a man with the kind of rank and insight and and intelligence as Ahithophel is hanging out with his son, he's thinking, "Uh uh-oh, we're in big trouble. So he drops to his knees and it says in verse 31, he prays, oh Yahweh, turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. He's not passive, he's active. He's saying, God, it isn't right. That act of rebellion is not right. We need to do something specific to counter that. And he keeps going, verse 32. Hushai, this guy, Hushai the Archite shows up. That's his name, poor guy. And he shows up there and and he says, how can I help you? And David says, go back. If you travel with me, it'll be a burden. But look at the middle of verse 34. He says, say to Absalom, you know, I'll serve you. But what you can do in that position by serving him is you can, bottom of verse 34, help me by frustrating Ahithophel's advice. And he says, you know what? We're going to do some things here because what's going on in the kingdom right now is not right. My crisis is causing me lots of pain, but I'm going to respond not because I'm hurting. I'm going to respond because there are some things that are wrong. Now, I entrust my future to God, but I'm not going to rely on kicking back and doing nothing. What I need to rely on is God working through the decisions now that I make. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to make some plans. I'm going to have some informants amongst the religious leaders I'm going to pray to God specifically that he'll frustrate Ahithophel. I'm gonna put uh, Hushai the Archite in charge of trying to frustrate Ahithophel's counsel. And I'm gonna wait for information and see what God wants me to do next. Now, David, you need to understand, has distinguished two things. He's distinguished the pain that he feels because of the crisis and the wrong that exists in the crisis. Do you understand what I'm saying? He is not responding because Absalom poked him in the eye. So David's gonna poke Absalom in the eye. This is not a tit-for-tat, a quid pro quo. He's not just trying to fight back because he's been hurt. What David is trying to do, and I think he's doing it clearly because in verse 26, he's already resigned himself to what God wants to do. But now he's saying, God, help me to be used to do what's right. Now. I've been hurt, but I'm really responding because there's some wrong here. So I'm going to work for what's right. I put it this way in your outline. And, and the first word is critical because you can't do it if you're into self-promotion. You can't do it if you're into revenge. That's not what David's motive is. I think David's motive is doing what's right. So it's, he's humble about it. But he's humbly working to do what is right. Humbly working to establish what is right. And you and I need to humbly work for what's right. And what I'm saying is if your marriage is falling apart, Not only do you say to God, God, you know what, if this does fall apart and and if this is part of your plan for me and it's a weird twist in the plot in chapter five and you call me to to be a single person, if that's how this ends up, because I can't control it, then you know what, God, I'm resigned to your will here. But that doesn't mean I'm not going to do anything. If there's something wrong here, I need to work to fix it. I need to pray. I need to to make phone calls. I need to make appointments. I need to confront certain issues, and I need to work and do everything within my power to try and straighten out this wrong. Crisis at work, about to lose your job? Don't put your hands behind your head and say, oh, if that's God's will, I guess that's what will happen. Perhaps God would have you do something. If there's some wrong or some injustice or some inequity in that situation, work to make it right. Oh, we don't work out of pride. We don't work out of self-promotion. We don't work out of revenge. We work because there's a wrong that needs to be corrected. And that needs to be approached very humbly. And I think David is humbly responding to the wrong of Absalom's coup. It's not right. It shouldn't be happening. It's not authorized or sanctioned by God. So respond to it. By the way, this may be the hardest point on the outline because I find that when I'm hurting and going through my trials and my difficulties, sometimes I just get tired. I just get frustrated to the point of being just weary. It's like I don't even want to pray about it anymore. It's so, so hard and it's just hurting so bad. So it's just like I start to shut down. It's the temptation of being lazy in the midst of my crisis. And you know what often happens? People give me the right to be lazy when they see me hurting. Does that happen to you? They kind of sympathize for you. So they, they understand that you're not on your knees praying or they understand that you're not making phone calls or trying to work to straighten it out because, of course, you're hurting now. And people start, you know, treating you with kid gloves and backing off and going, oh, poor Mike. He's just, you know, going through trial. Remember this when you're going through your next crisis. God never gives you permission to be lazy. And you know what? If you aren't working for what's right in your life, then you're obviously not in the middle of God's will because you've got to be someone that's constantly moving and working for what's right. I sit across the desk from people that are going through problems in their life and they act like and they talk like they're the only person for whom the Christian life is hard. I mean, they act like they're the only person for whom it is hard to get down and really pray and struggle through an issue. You know what? Here's a newsflash. It is hard for all of us to be godly. Would you recognize that? It is not easy for any of us. It is work. God calls us soldiers. He calls us athletes. He calls us farmers. And none of those are a walk in the park. You understand that. Those are all difficult job descriptions. And we are called to be workers. We're called to be fighters. We're called to have endurance and patience and have all those things that go with establishing what's right in the world of wrong. And if your crisis has anything wrong about it, then you should take cues from David and recognize there's times to meet, there's times to pray, there's times to get involved. And we need to get involved in making it right. I know often we long for a, a Christian experience that's without trials. Oh, you may not ever verbalize it sometimes you may in your complaining or your you know your your comments and grumbling about your crisis you may you may talk like or at least think like you know it would be great to have a christian life with no problems Or my kids are just perfect and they obey me all the time and my marriage is so wonderful it's just blissful every day and at work they give me plaques and trophies every week and give me bonuses every year and and I get huge raises and everyone loves me and and I'm just I'm just wonderfully moving through my christian experience you may long for that Not only do you know that's not God's curriculum for the Christian life, but I hope you realize how detrimental that would be for you. If you have a clear sailing, smooth sailing life, you're not going to be useful in the kingdom. You are not going to have the kind of Christian experience that you're supposed to because in our fallen state right now, you are prone to atrophy in every area of your your Christian life. If God does not stretch your faith, it won't grow. If God does not pull you in an area where you need endurance, then you'll never have endurance. If he doesn't push you under some pressure, you'll never have strength. It's kind of like the cosmonauts who were setting records in the late 80s for long-term space travel. They would orbit the earth for sometimes 10 to 11 months. And you know that when those cosmonauts came home, without fail, those guys in the early days of long-term space exploration and, and, and endurance in space, they would come home with all kinds of physical problems. It would take those guys an average of seven days to even walk again. After months of being back on earth, they would still be going through physical therapy to get their heart rate down. They would still have palpitations in their hearts. Their muscles would be atrophied. Everything about their systems would be damaged because of the fun and, and leisure of, of weightlessness in space. And now, you know, I think, you know, if you ever see any kind of space stuff going on now, you know that physical exercise is a part of their regimen. And they've come up with all these things to keep the muscles going, because if you don't work those muscles, their body in weightlessness is prone to atrophy. If you have long stints in your Christian life without trials or struggles or pain, trust me, it's not good. You think it's good. We, we hope for it. We long for it. But in our current state in which we live, our spiritual life is prone to atrophy. And you will be much more useful in the kingdom of God when not only you get used to the trials and tribulations that come in the Christian life, but when you purpose to ask why a whole lot less and just ask yourself, am I responding in a godly way? Not being an independent Lone Ranger Christian, but working as a team. Deferring to God and knowing that it's not my task to freak out, it's my task to trust. And then realizing that we have no excuse to be lazy, but God wants us to get up and do whatever it is to reestablish the right in our lives and to make it through that trial. You do that, you'll respond in a godly way. And not only will you grow, but you'll be useful in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. God, it's so hard for us not to ask why we look at the timing, we look at the severity, we look at the pain involved, we look at the way the pain lasts, and we say, God, why are you allowing this in my life? And God, I pray, though that's a a legitimate question, I pray that this week at least we would focus much more, not on why it's happening, but what I'm supposed to do now that it is happening. How can I be part of a team in my church? How can I invest in relationships where we're networking together and being a part of this crisis as a a unit and not as individuals? God, help us to be like David in this regard, because in this chapter, I think he's responded well. He's done for us and laid down for us, I should say, a pattern by which we can live and we can say, God, we need to be more like that. God, help us to do that and to be that, trusting on you the whole time, knowing that you're the author of our life. And though things look really weird in this particular chapter, it's all going to be resolved. We trust you. You've proved it in the past, and you'll prove it in the future as you work all things together for good in our lives. Give us that confidence in your faithfulness. In Jesus' name. Amen.
0: You're listening to Focal Point and a message called, How to Be Godly in the Worst of Times, from Pastor Mike Fabares. If you'd like the study notes, or if you'd like to listen to the complete message without interruption, go to focalpointradio.org. You can also listen to the program on demand by downloading the Focal Point mobile app or subscribing on your favorite podcasting platform. Well, if you've ever navigated a difficult season, then you know how easy it is to find yourself vulnerable to doubt, fear, and worry. In these moments, we may even ask, does God care? Has He forgotten me? Well, Pastor Mike has written a helpful book on this topic called Lifelines for Tough Times. In it, he looks to the truths found in Scripture for answers to these questions and many more. Along the way, he shares how complete trust in God can restore your confidence and hope and how God promises to love and protect you no matter what happens. When you support Focal Point with a donation today, we'll send you a copy of Pastor Mike's book with our gratitude. Just call 888 5885 That's 888-320-5885 or go to focalpointradio.org. If you prefer sending your gift by mail, write to Focal Point, Post Office Box 2850, Laguna Hills, California, 92654. We make Pastor Mike's teaching available in as many formats as we can, but none of this is possible without the generous donations of your fellow listeners. If you've given to support this ministry in the past, thank you. We appreciate you. By the way, if you haven't let us know you're listening in the past, today is a great day to connect. When you do, we're going to send you a special gift, a CD message from Pastor Mike's Lifelines for Tough Times series. It's called God's Presence and Help When You Hurt. Find the CD online at focalpointradio.org. Well, I'm your host, Dave Druey, inviting you to join us again tomorrow for our weekly feature called Ask Pastor Mike. We'll be talking about forgiveness and how to handle offenses in light of the cross. A powerful and relevant discussion coming up Friday on Focal Point. Pastor Mike here. You know, it's an honor to be with you every day, helping you explore the depths of scripture.
1: But I wanna be clear, no amount of Bible knowledge is ever going to save you. Be sure where you stand with God Get in touch with us we'd love to pray with you and for you
0: visit us today at focalpointradio.org we look forward to hearing from you today's program was produced and sponsored by focal point ministries